The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is mainly concerned with, well, traffic safety. That mission involves rulemaking. And going back a decade, Congress has asked for 19 reports and 22 rules from NHTSA. But the agency has been slow at getting all of this administrivia out the door. We get more now from the Director of Physical Infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office, Biza Repco. Ms. Repco, good to have you on. Great to be here. And we're covering this kind of arcane topic because every agency gets these orders from Congress. And you would think that federal rulemaking should be like a natural, often used muscle for an agency. What did you find at NHTSA? You're right. Issuing regulations through the rulemaking process is an important tool that NHTSA uses to improve safety for motor vehicles. And it's really important work because tragically motor vehicle crashes have been increasing in recent years. About 40,000 people died in 2020. And we took a look at how NHTSA was doing in completing rulemakings that Congress asked them to do. We found that it completed all of the reports, but most of them were late, and it only completed about 25% of the required rulemakings. Yeah, so something is stuck in there. They're in reverse instead of in drive to uh, make a metaphor. So what was the reasoning behind the slowness here? Well, we talked to NHTSA officials, and we also talked to regulatory experts about what might be the reasons why they are falling behind here. There were several reasons that were given to us. They could be factors like administration priorities, or the complexity of the issue that they're working on, or the availability of resources to work those issues. Yeah. So let's talk about the reports for a moment. You say the the administration priorities. If Congress has asked for these 19 reports and in that period of time we've had three administrations, should that really affect the agency's efficacy in getting those reports out, even if this administration likes it and the next one doesn't? Sure. I mean, it certainly is a priority of Congress's for them to put out these reports. And part of the reason why that's important is because Congress uses the reports in order to conduct its oversight and to figure out if there's different policy issues that Congress needs to pursue. There can be a lot of complexity behind doing the reports, and that can be an issue that slows them down. They did complete all 19 of the reports that they were asked to complete, although all but two of them were completed late from about two months to three years. And I guess the question comes up, you don't just sit down and write a report and sign it. There must be an exhaustive process for creating congressionally mandated reports. I would make the analogy to the authority to operate required for new computer systems. You just don't develop it and then launch it. Is that true for reports? There's a formal process? That's absolutely true. There is a formal process that the reports go through, and there's often a lot of research that goes behind the reports. You know, for instance, NHTSA may be asked, what are the key drivers of fatal crashes? And that is a technically sophisticated report to put together. There's a lot of data and analysis that they need to go through in putting that report out. So it can take some time. They also want to do it right because it's important for them to have a quality report because Congress is going to use that report to conduct its oversight and to make policy. Right. I could do that in a very short form. The reason of all of these federal crashes is the nuts behind the wheel. (laughs) Well, you know, they have found that crashes have been increasing in the last couple of years. And that's a sort of an interesting finding because the miles traveled have been decreasing. So it's interesting to get behind that number. And NHTSA is trying to do that right now. And so all the more important for reports to come out on time because they have a timely factor connected with them. Absolutely. 
We're speaking with Biza Repko. She's Director of Physical Infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. And let's turn to the rulemaking, because that does have prescribed timelines in the administrative codes of the United States. And you've got 60 days for this and 90 days for that and so on. But then there is that review period before final. Is that where the hang-up was coming? We found that during the review process, NHTSA tended to follow a schedule, but prior to the review process, they weren't consistently following a schedule or leading schedule management practices. And by that, we mean things like establish milestones and sequence your activities and then track back so that you can accurately provide information about the progress that you're making. Because in dealing with the automotive industry, dealing with state and local officials, dealing with road engineering standards bodies, I mean, a lot impinges on understanding traffic. Could it be that they maybe had a little lack of confidence because of pushback and opinion and lobbying even by these various interest groups? Well, I really do think it is important to note that rulemakings are very complex undertakings. They're technically complex, they're legally complex, they can be scientifically complex, and there really isn't a one-size-fits-all. There's not a standard length of time in which an agency should be expected to complete a rulemaking. And that is why we made recommendations that were in the realm related to leading practices, because those practices do allow an agency to consider unique things that are the characteristics of the rulemaking they're doing. Maybe it is more scientific. Maybe there are more stakeholders that they want to consult. And that by using leading practices, you can look at what's unique, look at those key characteristics, and then arrive at an understanding of how and when you want to reach milestones along the process, which we think is a process that could help them manage timeframes and reduce delays, and maybe hopefully help them complete, you know, the 16 of those 22 that are incomplete. All right, so let's get back to the recommendations then. What specifically are you asking them to do here? Well, we recommended to them that they update their procedures to require the use of leading schedule management practices for all rulemakings and reports. We also recommended they improve their communication to Congress and to the public about the status of rulemakings and reports. And our hope is that this can reduce delays in the process. And even if the delays aren't reduced, we hope it improves communication about where they are with their efforts, which can help enhance oversight of the activities by Congress and can help increase public understanding about important safety issues. And by the way, was there a staffing component to these problems, which could take two forms. One is political interference or the change in leadership that has different takes on how rulemaking should go or what the outcome should be. And then there's just the basic administrative question, do they have enough people with enough experience in rulemaking to be able to conduct these things according to the best practices? Well, one of the challenges that they did talk to us about were resource challenges, and those could be staffing challenges. One example they gave us is that they were working on a rulemaking that was related to airbags during the time when there was the Takata airbag incident, and they had to pull staff away to work on that breaking issue, and it slowed down their ability to work on the rulemaking process. And did the agency generally concur with the recommendations you made? They did. They concurred with the recommendations that we made, and we're looking forward to seeing how they implement the leading practices for the rulemakings, the 16 that are still incomplete, and we're looking forward to seeing them publicly put forth their reports so that more people can be able to find them and learn about the research that they're doing. 
Biza Repco is Director of Physical Infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive even if you're not driving. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.